Today, uh, the message, um, we'll be taking some time to kind of review some of the few things that we, we've talked about previously, but one of the things that is kind of the big idea with this is that uh, we can integrate faith into our work life, and that really, uh, we do spend a lot of time at work, don't we? And when I say work, uh, if you're a student, going to school is your work, so uh being a student, doing your work there, doing your work, wherever it may be, we spend a lot of time there. And so it's an important place for us because if uh, we separate our faith from that part of our life, it's the majority of our life that we separate faith from. It's a a huge compartment if you're going to compartmentalize. So, but one of the things uh, in this message, in this message today that I want to share with you is that, that there is a sense that all people matter to God. It is one of our values, but I think sometimes we overlook God's graciousness to uh, everyone on this earth. And the other thing that's uh, maybe a value of our church that's communicated in this message today is that we're called to reveal Christ in our everyday lives. And one of the places that we're most everyday at is our work. So there is one uh, story from the scripture that I want us to look at. It's from Isaiah. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, a Bible on your phone, Isaiah 28, verses 23, 29, or you can follow on the screens. But it's a story about a farmer. And, of course, everything uh, in traditional culture began with agriculture. Uh, it was kind of the basis for all work in the beginning. So this picture of a farmer is, is an analog or it's a representation of all different kinds of work that are represented today. Uh, so listen to Isaiah and his words. And these are the words of God speaking through Isaiah. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and harrowing the soil? And when he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over a cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. Though he drives the wheels of his threshing cart over it, his horses do not grind it. All of this also comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. Now, we're not going to get into what all these agricultural terms mean, and we aren't going to, you know, so don't worry if you don't know what caraway is or what it means to thresh or what it looks like when they thresh back then. Here, here's, here's the idea with this and the big idea. God cares about your work. He understands the details of your work. And you may not have understood the details of that farmer's work, but God did. And in the same way, I may not understand the details of your specific job or your work, but God does. And ultimately, the way work, the ways of work originate from God and his counsel. God instructs us, Isaiah says. But I want to take a few moments and uh, come back to this. And right now, I just want to describe a bit of what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, what describes a biblical view of work and what that might look like, especially for those of us who believe 
and have trusted in the saving grace of Jesus. So first, when we rest in Jesus, his grace, we have a new framework or a story or narrative for viewing our work. Our motivation isn't just to justify our lives and our existence. You know, we aren't saying, oh, well, I'm going to be the best at this job so I can make a name for myself. We don't have to be motivated that way. We don't have to say, oh, man, I got, I got to do this well because I have to prove to others that I'm competent or I can, I'm, I'm worthy. See, those things, those kind of motivations are all put to the side and, and put to rest because we know that the God of all things, God the Father, sacrificially gave his son for us and he made us valuable. We now have his approval in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation for us any longer. So we're not, we don't have to enter into anyone else's courtroom because we've already walked into God's courtroom and what, the judgment that he's placed on us in Jesus Christ is not guilty. We are not condemned. So he has given us great worth. What's the worth that he's put on us? What's the price tag he's placed on us? He sent his son to die for us. That's the value he's placed on each one of our lives. And so we know this, and that changes our view of everything. We also know that because we're made in the image, in the image of God, even if we don't ever trust in God's saving grace, we're still made in his image. And if we're made in his image, we're made to be like him. And of course, the first picture that we saw in Genesis is, is that God was at work. And we're made to work like him. And he created and he cultivated. In the same way, we're called to do that in our work. To find ways to create, find ways to cultivate. So we now, with this worldview, have a higher motivation for our work. One of the other things that we've learned with this new narrative is we know that all work is noble. We don't rank work. We say, well, this kind of work, this is really sucky work, and so that's just stupid. That has no worth. That has no value. We don't say that when we know of God's story and what he's done because all work is noble no matter what people might rank it as in our society. All work is noble, and all work can be worship. When we do our best, when we over-deliver in our work, we do that because we see our work as a service to the Lord. We're just not working for the boss, man. We're just not working for our employer that we're trying to please. We're, as Christ followers, we're working for the Lord himself. And that can unleash us, unleash us to bring excellence in our work in a way that is so very different. Knowing also that our work is noble, whether it's a service that we, we provide to others or we make products for society, we know that we serve not only God, but serve the work itself. Trying to advance the field of work by becoming skilled, by trying to master our craft and expand. And, and that, when we do that, when we try to be competent in our work, and that becomes our ministry, we not only advance the work, we not only expand our influence in the workplace, but we also bring glory to God. It's, it's amazing when someone does their, their work well. I mean, when you go to some place and someone really serves you well, don't you just kind of go, wow, this was, this was a great experience. And you're, almost, you're, you're wanting to say thank you to the person. or you're, you're almost, It's almost you turn into almost like an attitude of worship. You know, you're kind of like, 
wow, thank God, this was a great, great time we had, and the service was awesome, and the people, what they provided, and you, you're, you're thankful. That, that's the kind of thing that should happen when we do our work. It should inspire thankfulness to God, inspire worship. And it's amazing when people simply do work well, what that inspires and what it does. One of the other things that we talked about is even if there are hard times, uh, or, or it's, we find it hard at times to find purpose in our work, we still can go to our work and know that we can approach it as coming to it as a life-giving presence, just like Christ came and was a life-giving presence. Everywhere he went, things got better. And so even if we have a hard time finding purpose in our work, we can strive to be an influence in our workplace, to be a better team player, to try to shape a positive attitude. Instead of coming to work and being the opposite, being a life drainer, a life sucker of everyone around you, we can help establish a culture of encouragement in our workplace. And some of you in school know this. I mean, you show up at school, and what, what, how do people talk to each other at school? They, some, some people do this to make themselves better, feel better about themselves. They cut down other people. And it seems like sometimes in a cut, competitive place, people like to do the cut downs, trash talk, knocking others down. We have the role and the opportunity to change that, to change an environment to an environment of encouragement. What can we do about that? Well, we can, uh, as a life-giving presence, we can also walk with integrity and establish a track record of faithfulness. You know, there's people that go to work and they're very overt about their Christian faith, but then they're not faithful with their work. They they stink at it. And, And so... The boss or the employer is kind of scratching their head going, I don't get it. They overtly talk about Jesus all the time, and then they just do a sucky job. And I don't know how those two go together. I I thought there would be some sort of integrity in their work. So when we have integrity in our work, when we do it well, when we establish a record of faithfulness, that is a testimony to the people around us. It's a testimony that sings the praise of God. And we can have peace in our hearts when we know that we're giving our best and we're being faithful. And at the same time, others know that we're trustworthy and that they can rely on us. So with the framework of of the larger story of the gospel for our smaller story of work, we can also make sense of the trouble that we sometimes encounter with the work that we love. You know, even those of us here who have, have the wonderful chance of working a job that we love and we're passionate about, we've got a great team around us, and everything seems to be going in the right direction, even for someone in that situation, things will go wrong. You will find resistance to your work. Why? Because we learn from the larger framework, the larger story, that there's this thing called the fall. And there's this time when sin entered the world and it's been handed down to us and it's messed things up quite a bit. And it explains that each of us, at one time or another, are going to face thorns and thistles in our work part of the curse that was handed down from Adam and Eve. And those thorns and thistles seem to sometimes make work seem fruitless. You ever have a day where you're doing work and at the end of the day you're kind of like, man, did I accomplish anything? Did anything happen? You know, that's sometimes the fruitlessness that we feel. And it can be frustrating. But when we know that there will be resistance to our work just because of the broken world we lived in, we live in, then we know that these are the moments that we trust God we trust God to help him, trust God for him to help us 
through those tough moments, to be able to push through and to know and to live with the reality and tension of people with a new biblical view of work, but yet still the tension of a broken world. So with the framework of the gospel, resting in Jesus, we also can let go of work. You know, we don't have to be afraid to rest. We don't have to be afraid to take a day off. Man, if I take a day off, I'll get behind on my work. I won't be able to produce what we need. And then if I take a week off, man, I better, I better do twice the work before I take the week off so that when I get back, I won't be behind. You know, we don't have to do that. We can rest in Jesus. No, it's going to be okay. You know, the one thing that's true, especially with the tension of family and work, you've got to know this, everybody here, and this is a simple illustration, but, you know, your family and your relationships, it's, 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 like, a, it's like a glass ball. It's like a Christmas ornament. And, and if you try to, if you drop it and let it go, it, it shatters. It doesn't bounce. But work is like a rubber ball. You drop it and it'll bounce back. It always will bounce back. I mean, you can throw it down as hard as you want, and it will still come back to you. And so just know that you can let go of work. And as part of trusting God in that and trusting to rest. And it, like the man in Ecclesiastes, we learned that we can, with one hand, grab work, and with the other hand, grab rest. And we have to wrestle with that tension, but it's okay. We can do it because it's foolishness to try to grab both hands a hold of work. It'll be just like trying to grab the air or grab the wind. You won't be able to do it. So now that I've shared just this list of, of, of things, this, these picture of things, of way, the ways that Christ changes our view of work. And again, it, this, that wasn't an exhaustive description, but just a brief description of the difference that Christ can make in our work. But I just want you to know that the place that we spend the majority of our time in can be different. It can change because Jesus and his gospel can change life as we know it. And if we're living in this larger framework, things can be different. They don't have to be the same as they were yesterday. Now, I hope that you know from that these things, it's okay to have some healthy ambition about work. It's okay to have that. It's okay to reject the passivity of, of being stuck or what you feel like is being stuck in the rut of some job or some work. And it's okay to search for another job that is the work you're more fitted for. It's okay to pursue your work and the kind of work that you enjoy to make good money at and it fits your skill set. It's all right to do that. But in having, a, and then I also just like to say to the students, it's also okay if you find out that you stink at certain subjects and you can let it go. And know that there are other subjects that, that, that you can be great at and you can excel at. You don't have to be great at everything. And failure is not fatal and it's never final. All right? So, but in having this biblical view of work, I hope that you and I, you know, as we kind of, you know, go, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing that with work. I kind of got that view. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, trying to be a life-giving presence. I'm not, not being a, you know, drain, drain on people or anything. And, and, you know, you're kind of going down and going, you know, I think I got something under this on my, under my belt. I, I hope that's good. I hope you're encouraged. And I hope that you want to strengthen those things, those areas of, of your view of work. But I hope that none of us will, will lean to that side of kind of pride and arrogance. Because that would just be a big mistake. And I hope that we will see ourselves as, as distinct 
from the world because we're, we're believers, but will not separate ourselves from the world. Christ followers are never as good as their right beliefs should make them. And non-Christians are never as bad as their wrong beliefs should make them. And, I, and I, I'll show this to you from, from our story here in Isaiah. And I, and I want to show you and remind you of something, something that's called common grace, something that Sue mentioned with the kids here just a moment ago. In the passage about the farmer in Isaiah 28, the one who's bringing advancement in agriculture, he, he is being taught by God, the scripture says. And what appears as just discovery to him, uh, finding the proper season for, uh, and the conditions for planting and sowing, uh, uh, farm management, the rotation of crops, that's actually the creator opening his book of creation and revealing his truth. Now, now farming, again, is an analog. It's a representation to all culture making, all work. So every advancement in learning, every work of art, every innovation in healthcare and technology or management or governance is simply God opening the book of creation and revealing his truth to us. And of course, the vast majority of farmers in the history of the world didn't know God was doing this, that God was teaching them. But Isaiah says that is exactly what was happening. This is what's called general revelation. It's an aspect of common grace in which God reveals himself to all people. Uh, like, like in uh, Psalm 19, where God says that the heavens and the earth are declaring his praise in a language that can be heard all around the globe, no matter what native tongue you were born with. Look at James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. Every gift. It doesn't say uh, every other gift. It doesn't say some of the gifts, uh, some of the good things, uh, not all the good things. It says every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. This means that every act of goodness, wisdom, justice, and beauty, no matter who does it, is being enabled by God. It is a gift, and therefore it's a form of grace. Look at Jesus explaining the Father's heart on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he causes and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the bad. God is merciful to us all. Now look at Isaiah 45, 1, where Cyrus, a pagan king, says that God anoints him with his spirit and chooses him for for world leadership. And then again in Genesis 20, if you go back further, verses 6 and 7, we read how God prevents another pagan king from falling into sin. These are all indications of God's spirit functioning, as as theologians describe it, as both a a non-saving, ennobling force in the world and a non-saving, restraining force in the world. So this isn't God's spirit Uh, regenerating, converting, or sanctifying, but rather giving wisdom, courage, and insight to restrain the effects of sin in the world, even to those who would even deny God's existence. Romans 1 and 2, they confirm that all of us share in, in some sort of primal knowledge of God. We're told that God's law is written on our hearts, and that's just not people who've said yes to Jesus. That's everyone. What that means is people have innate 
conscience preloaded with a sense of honesty, justice, love, and so on. And people know at some deep level that there is a God and that we are his creatures, that we should serve him, and that he makes demands on us for relationships with him and with other people. God further reveals himself to all people through the majesty of nature, which includes human culture, which is the forming and filling of nature that God has already made. So through God's common grace, he blesses all people, and which means that Christ followers, you and me, we can benefit from that and cooperate with non-Christians. But there are, are limitations to, to common grace, which requires us to respond to these blessings with balance. Romans 1.18 describes people who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, because of Christ, we're told that we, we've been made righteous. Not a righteousness of our own, but we've been given, imparted righteousness. So, we're people who can hold truth with righteousness, but there are also people who hold truth with unrighteousness. It's a statement with two edges to it. First, we have to acknowledge that there is no neutrality in the world. Everyone who does not acknowledge Christ as Lord is operating out of a false view of ultimate reality, while those who confess Christ as Lord are in line with the ultimate reality. And, and everyone is either operating from a worldview that either denies Christ or worships him, one or the other. No one is objective, no one is neutral, no one can avoid the question. And at the same time, the doctrine of common grace means that despite all these false worldviews, everyone grasps and to some degree acknowledges aspects of the biblical worldview, truths, about God, about creation, about human nature, our need for rescue. That's why you can go to a movie that is not made by Christians and you can see themes of redemption in it and go, did they read the Bible when they, before they wrote this? Did, what, what? That's why it, it appears everywhere and we can see it. All people hold these beliefs at some level, even if their conscious, intellectual, culturally conditioned, second-order beliefs deny them utterly. Paul says we hold the truth in unrighteousness, which means we all have truth in some way. How else could we hold it? So here's an example of, of how maybe this common grace plays out in work. And, and maybe you've experienced this in some way with a coworker or someone who excels in their work. Uh, There's a, there a play by Peter Schaefer called Amadeus. It's about Mozart. Uh, and his music, and, and also one of his contemporaries, Salieri. And uh, it, it was also made into a movie back in the day when I was in high school, and there was a really cool 80s song that went with it. Amadeus, Amadeus, Amadeus. You haven't heard that? Okay. Rock me, Amadeus. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, and so there's uh, this movie and the two characters, Mozart and Salieri. And Salieri is, is a great musician by, by all standards of his day. And he is working in the royal court of the king, uh, teaching and writing music and performing. Uh, but then Mozart comes along. And Mozart has this genius for music. And it is, it, it's amazing. And it baffles Salieri because Salieri is a moral, upright kind of guy. And in fact, there's moments where, where he's asking God, God, would you give me a greater gift for music? Would you help me be able to write and, and make stuff? And, and he gets frustrated because when he looks at Mozart, 
And, of course, in this fictional account, we, we don't really know for sure, but in this fictional account uh, written by Schaefer, Mozart is morally despicable. He, he is, in, in the movie, they, they even accent it a little more because they, they, they give him this, this little hyena laugh, and it's just so irritating. And he does something stupid, and he does this little hyena laugh, and everybody just kind of looks at him. And anyway, he's just, he's just kind of a jerk. But then he makes this beautiful, heavenly music. And Salieri is just like pulling his hair out. And he's going, God, I'll, I give myself to you. And, and yet I don't have an amazing gift like he does. And what Salieri, what happens is that he turns bitter and angry. And he's blinded by his own sin. And, and, and what he failed to understand was this idea and the reality of common grace. God gives out gifts of wisdom, talent, beauty, and skill according to his grace in a completely unmerited way. Mozart didn't deserve a gift like that. He was just given a gift like that. He cast these gifts across the human race like he's scattering seed in order to enrich, to brighten, and preserve the world. And by all rights, sin should be making life on earth here much more unbearable than it is. And the reason that we're not worse off today is because of the gift of common grace. You know, without common grace, Christ followers might think that they can live self-sufficiently within their own spiritual, cultural enclave, feeling like they should only go to Christian doctors. They can only go to, should only go to Christian lawyers, only listen to Christian music and Christian artists. And of course, of course, all non-believers have seriously impaired spiritual vision. But so many of the gifts that God has put in the world are given to non-believers. So as a Christ follower, you and I are free to study the world in order to know more of God. For we can appreciate truth and wisdom wherever we find it. Now, without an understanding of common grace, Christ followers will also have trouble understanding why non-Christians so often exceed Christians morally and in wisdom. When we understand the doctrine of, of sin correctly, that we're all infected with it, it's just not an outer action on the outside, but we got it on the inside. It means believers are never as good as our true worldview should make us. You know, we just never can attain and live up to all these things that are in here in God's Word, can we? Yet we know it's true. And at the same time, when we understand the doctrine of grace, we know that unbelievers are never as messed up as their false worldview should make them. For in the framework of the story of God, the gospel, the antagonist, the villain is not the non-Christian. The villain is the reality of sin, which lies within us, as well as everyone else. So as you think about your work, as you think about your abilities, and maybe thinking about those who are, have greater abilities and greater gifts than you, as you think about what, how you could use your gifts to benefit the people around you in your community, know that you can work with non-Christians to serve the world. Understanding common grace can lead us to freely and humbly work with others who may not share our faith, but can be used greatly by God to accomplish enormous good. 
Didn't Nehemiah do this? Didn't Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego do this? Didn't Esther do this? And at the same time, an understanding of the gospel worldview means that we should at times respectfully pursue a different path. Like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah. There are times when we should winsomely point out how our Christian faith gives us a different path and gives us guidance for what we're doing and gives us powerful resources that maybe others don't have. You know, this series has been taught on this big idea of integrating our faith with every part of our life. And work is a big part of our life. And we can integrate faith with our work. We've got to break out of the compartmentalized life and also break out of a a, a dualistic thinking, thinking that, well, here is my religious life and here is my secular life. And on this day, I do my religious things. And on this day, I do my secular things. You've got to destroy that compartmentalization because all things are, are, are holy. All things are sacred when you're a Christ follower. Everything that we recognize is good. is a gift from God, right? And so there's just not one moment, one day when we do religious things, sacred things. Guys in the band can come on up here. So one of the things that we need to remember from all this is is not to disengage from your workplace because your coworkers commit overt actions of of sexual immorality or or they have dirty jokes or profanity or dishonesty. Yes, be wise and set boundaries for yourself. You don't have to participate in those things, but get a thicker view of sin, knowing that that we're all affected by a drive within us, a heart that wants to produce idols. Remember when we talked about that? I mean, the idol of significance, the idol of control and power, the idol of comfort. It comes after us, doesn't it, just as much as anybody else? It comes after us just as much as those who don't trust in Jesus? We, we might have a way to be a little more covert in our sin, a little more sophisticated, but we're not so different from the people around us. So don't join in with uncritical, uncritical consumption of everything that's going on around you, but also don't disengage from your workplace. So with the knowledge of work as noble and God's common grace, know that you can please Christ simply by doing your work well. You know, there's nothing wrong with, with starting a Bible study at work, your workplace or explicitly mentioning Jesus in an essay in your paper at school, but don't think that you have to do those things to please Christ with your work. Because doing your work well is just as pleasing to Christ and can be just as much of a testimony. Remember with the truths of sin and grace, work done by non-Christians always contain some degree of God's common grace as well as distortions from sin. And at the same time, work done by us, even work that overtly names Jesus, can also contain distortions of sin. If you are a Christ follower, it's not just on Sunday and during religious things that you're a Christ follower. You've been given a framework, a biblical view that reframes all things, not just religious things. 
you have been given a new framework for work. And as a Christ follower with this new view of work, you will be distinctive if you cling to it. And so you won't be able to just willy-nilly jump into the culture's idolatry of self, surface appearances, technique, personal freedom, materialism. You won't be able to jump in with that. You will have to think critically, though, and, and, but not disengage in a prideful way. Remember, because of what you know about sin and grace, Christ followers are never as good as their right beliefs should make them, and non-Christians are never as bad as their wrong beliefs should make them. The farmer in Isaiah, he tells us that the hands of God are behind our work and behind the work of our neighbors and our colleagues, whether they believe in Christ or not. Lord Jesus, I, I just want to ask right now that you would help us to set apart our work for you, that we would not compartmentalize our life into Sunday and the rest of the week, religious things one day and secular things on the rest of the week. Lord, break down those walls. Help us to see work in a new view, with a new viewpoint, with a picture of the greater story, the gospel, and what you've done for us. Let it become our higher motivation. Let us work for you. Let us do well for you. And let it be a testimony to you. Let it shine bright for you. Let it be bring honor to you and worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.